0: You are tuned to Radio Free Asgard, episode number 315, The Mead of Poets. Do you wonder where poetry comes from, where we get the songs we sing and the tales we tell? Do you ever ask yourself how it is that some people can dream great Wise, beautiful dreams and pass those dreams on as poetry to the world to be sung and retold as long as the sun rises and sets, as long as the moon will wax and wane. Have you ever wondered why some people make beautiful songs and poems and tales, and some of us do not? It's a long story, and it does no credit to anyone. There is murder in it, and trickery, and lies, and foolishness, seduction, and pursuit, "'Listen. "'It began not long after the dawn of time "'in a war between the gods. "'The Aesir fought the Vanir. "'The Aesir were warlike gods of battle and conquest. "'The Vanir were softer, "'brother and sister gods and goddesses "'who made the soils fertile and the plants grow, "'but nonetheless powerful for that. "'The gods of the Vanir and the Aesir were too well-matched. "'Neither side could win the war.' And more than that, as they fought, they realized that each side needed the other, that there is no joy in a brave battle unless you have fine fields and farms to feed you in the feasting that follows. They came together to negotiate a peace, and once the negotiations were concluded, they marked their truce by each of them, Aesir and Vanir alike, one by one, spitting into a vat. As their spit mingled, so was their agreement made binding. Then they had a feast. Food was eaten, mead was drunk, and they caroused and joked and talked and boasted and laughed as the fires became glowing coals, until the sun crept up above the horizon. Then, as the Aesir and the Vanir roused themselves to leave, to wrap themselves in furs and cloth and step out into the crisp snow in the morning mist, Odin said, It would be a shame to leave our mingled spittle behind us. "'Fry and Freya, brother and sister, were leaders of the Vanir, "'who would stay with the Aesir in Asgard from now on under the terms of the truce. "'They nodded. "'We could make something from it,' said Fry. "'We should make a man,' said Freya, and she reached into the vat. "'The spittle transformed and took shape as her fingers moved, "'and in moments it had taken on the appearance of a man and stood naked before them. "'You are Kvazir,' said Odin.' do you know who I am? You are Odin, the all-highest, said Kvasir. You are Grimnir and Third. You have other names, too many to list in this place, but I know them all, and I know the poems and the chants and the kennings that go with them. Kvasir, made of the joining of the Aesir and the Vanir, was the wisest of the gods. He combined heart and head. The gods jostled each other to be next to ask him questions, and his answers to them were always wise. He observed keenly, and he interpreted what he saw correctly. Soon enough, Kvasir turned to the gods and said, I am going to travel now. I am going to see the nine worlds, see Midgard. There are questions to be answered that I have not yet been asked. But will you come back to us? they asked. I will come back, said Kvasir. "'There is the mystery of the net, after all, which one day will need to be untangled.' "'The what?' asked Thor. "'But Kvasir merely smiled, and he left the gods puzzling over his words, "'and he put on a travelling cloak, and he left Asgard and walked the Rainbow Bridge. "'Kvasir went from town to town, from village to village. "'He met people of all kinds, and he treated them well and answered their questions.' and there was not a place but was the better for Quasir stopping there. In those days there were two dark elves who lived in a fortress by the sea. They did magic there and feats of alchemy. Like all dwarfs, they built things, wonderful, remarkable things, in their workshop and their forge. But there were things that they had not yet made, and making those things obsessed them. They were brothers and were called Fialar and Galar. When they heard that Kvasir was visiting a town nearby, they set out to meet him. Fjallar and Galar found Kvasir in the great hall, answering questions for the townsfolk, amazing all who listened. He told the people how to purify water and how to make cloth from nettles. He told one woman exactly who had stolen her knife and why. Once he was done talking and the townsfolk had fed him, the dwarfs approached. "'We have a question to ask you that you have never been asked before,' they said. "'But it must be asked in private. Will you come with us?' "'I will come,' said Kvazir. They walked to the fortress. The seagulls screamed, and the brooding grey clouds were the same shade as the grey of the waves. The dwarfs led Kvasir to their workshop deep within the walls of their fortress. "'What are those?' asked Kvazir. "'They are vats.' They are called son and bone. I see. And what is that over there? How can you be so wise when you do not know these things? It is a kettle. They call it odrerier, ecstasy giver. And I see over there you have buckets of honey you have gathered. It is uncapped and liquid. Indeed we do, said Fjallar. Galar looked scornful. "'If you were as wise as they say you are, "'you would have known what our question to you would be before we asked it, "'and you would know what these things are for.' "'Kfazir nodded in a resigned way. "'It seems to me,' he said, "'that if you were both intelligent and evil, "'you might have decided to kill your visitor "'and let his blood flow into the vats, son and bolden, "'and then you would heat his blood gently in your kettle, Odrerir, "'and after that you would blend uncapped honey into the mixture "'and let it ferment until it became mead, the finest mead, "'a drink that will intoxicate anyone who drinks it, "'but also give anyone who tastes it the gift of poetry "'and the gift of scholarship. "'We are intelligent,' admitted Galar, "'and perhaps there are those who might think us evil.' "'And with that he slashed Kvasir's throat.' "'and they hung Kvazir by his feet over the vats "'until the last drop of his blood was drained. "'They warmed the blood and the honey in the kettle "'called Odreir and did other things to it "'of their own devising. "'They put berries into it and stirred it with a stick. "'It bubbled, and then it ceased bubbling, "'and both of them sipped it and laughed, "'and each of the brothers found the verse "'and the poetry inside himself that he had never let out. "'The gods came the next morning they said he was last seen with you yes said the dwarfs he came back with us but when he realized that we are only dwarfs and foolish and lacking in wisdom he choked on his own knowledge if only we had been able to ask him questions he died you say yes said fjallar and galler and they gave the gods Kvazir's bloodless body to take back to asgard for a god's funeral and perhaps because gods are not as others, and death is not always permanent for them, for a god's eventual return. Thus it was that the dwarves had the mead of wisdom and poetry, and any person who wished to taste it needed to beg it from the dwarves. But Galar and Fialar gave the mead only to those they liked, and they liked nobody but themselves. Still, there were those to whom they had obligations. The giant Geeling, for example, and his wife, the dwarves invited them to come and visit their fortress, and one winter's day they came. Let us go rowing in our boat, the dwarves told Geeling. giant's weight made the boat ride low in the water, and the dwarves rowed the boat onto the rocks just under the surface. Always before their boat had floated serenely above the rocks. Not this time. The boat crashed into the rocks and overturned, throwing the giant into the sea. Swim back to the boat, the brothers called to Geeling. "'I cannot swim,' he said, and that was the last thing he said, for a wave filled his open mouth with salt water, and his head hit the rocks, and in a moment he was lost to view. Fialar and Galar righted their boat and went home. Gilling's wife was waiting for them. "'Where is my husband?' she asked. "'Him?' said Galar. "'Oh, he's dead.' "'Drowned,' added Fialar helpfully.' At this, the giant's wife wailed and sobbed as if each cry were being ripped from her soul. She called to her dead husband and swore she would love him always, and she cried and moaned and wept. Hush, said Gower. Your weeping and wailing hurts my ears. It's very loud. I suspect it's because you're a giant. But the giant's wife simply wept the louder. Here, said Fjallar. Would it help you if we showed you the place where your husband died? She sniffed and nodded and cried and wailed and keened for her husband, who would never come back to her. Stand just over there and we will point it out to you, said Fjallar, showing her exactly where she should stand, that she should go through the great door and stand beneath the wall of the fortress. And he nodded to his brother, who scurried off up the steps to the wall above. As Geeling's wife walked through the door, Gallard dropped a huge stone on her head, and she fell, her skull half-crushed. Good job, said Fjallar. I was getting very tired of those dreadful noises. They pushed the woman's lifeless body off the rocks and into the sea. The fingers of the gray waves dragged her body away from them, and Gilling's wife and Gilling were reunited in death. The dwarves shrugged, and they believed themselves to be extremely clever in their fortress by the sea. They drank the mead of poetry each night and declaimed great and beautiful verses to each other, "'Made mighty sagas about the death of Gilling and Gilling's wife, "'which they declaimed from the rooftop of their fortress. And "'Eventually each night they slept, "'insensible and, and woke where they had sat down "'or fallen the night before. "'One day they woke as usual, "'but they did not wake in their forest. "'They woke on the floor of their boat, a giant whom they did not recognize "'was rowing it into the waves. "'The sky was dark and with storm clouds, "'and the sea was black.' The waves were high and rough, and the salt water splashed over the side of the dwarves' boat, soaking them. "'Who are you?' asked the dwarves. "'I am Sutong,' said the giant. "'I heard you were bragging to the wind and the waves in the world about having killed my father and mother.' "'Ah,' said Gellar. "'Does that explain why you've tied us up?' "'It does,' said Sutong. Perhaps you are taking us to a glorious place, said Fiala, hopefully, where you will untie us, and there we will feast and drink and laugh and become the best of friends. I do not believe so, said Sutung. It was low tide. There were rocks jutting out above the water. They were the same rocks upon which at high tide the dwarf's boat had overturned, on which Geeling had drowned. Sutung picked up each of the dwarves, took him from the bottom of the boat, and placed him on the rocks. These rocks will be covered by the sea at high tide, said Fjallar. Our hands are tied behind our backs. We cannot swim. If you leave us here, we will undoubtedly drown. That is certainly the intention, said Sutung. He smiled then for the first time. And as you drown, I shall sit in this, your boat, and I shall watch the sea take you both. That I shall return home to Jotunheim, and I will tell my brother Baugi and my daughter Gunlod how you died, and we will be satisfied that my mother and my father were appropriately avenged. The sea began to rise. It covered the dwarves' feet, and then it came up to their navels. Soon enough, the dwarves' beards were floating in the foam, and there was panic in their eyes. Mercy, they called. Like the mercy you gave my mother and my father? We will compensate you for their debts. We will make it up to you. We'll pay you. I do not believe that you dwarves possess anything that could compensate me for my parents' debts. I am a wealthy giant. I have many servants in my mountain fastness and all the riches I could dream of. Gold I have. And precious stones and iron enough to make a thousand swords. I am the master of mighty magics. What could you give me that I do not already have? asked Suttung. The dwarf said nothing at all. The waves continued to rise. We have mead, the mead of poetry, sputtered Galar as the water brushed his lips. Made of Kvasir's blood, wisest of all the gods, shouted Fjallar. Two vats and a kettle. "'All filled with it. No one has it but us. No one in the whole world.' suk scratched his head. "'I must think about this. I must ponder. I must reflect.' "'Do not stop and think. If you think, we will drown!' shouted Fyalar over the roar of the waves. "'The tide rose. Waves were splashing over the dwarves' heads, and they were gulping air, and their eyes were round with fear.' When Sutung the giant reached out and poked first Fialar and then Galar from the waves. The mead of poetry will be adequate compensation. It is a fair price if you throw in a few other things, and I'm sure you dwarves have a few other things. I will spare your lives. He tossed them still bound and soaking into the bottom of the boat, where they wriggled uncomfortably like a couple of bearded lobsters, and he rowed back to shore. Sutung took the mead the dwarves had made from Kvazir's blood. He took other things from them as well, and he left that place and he left those dwarves who were all things considered happy enough to have gotten away with their lives. Fjallar and Galar told people who passed their fortress the story of how ill-used they had been by Suttung. They told it in the market when next they went to trade. They told it when ravens were near. And Asgard at his high seat... Odin sat, and his ravens, Hugin and Munin, whispered to him of the things they had seen and heard as they had wandered the world. Odin's one eye flashed when he heard the tale of Sutung's mead. The people who had heard the story called the mead of poetry the Ship of the Dwarves, since it had floated Fjallar and Galar off the rocks and taken them safely home. They called it the Liquid of Odrarir, or Bodn, or Son. Odin listened to his ravens' words, He called for his cloak and his hat. He sent for the gods and told them to prepare three enormous wooden vats, the largest vats that they could build, and to have them waiting by the gates of Asgard. He told the gods he would be leaving them to walk the world, and might be some time. I will take two things with me, said Odin. I need a whetstone to sharpen a blade with, the finest we have here, and I wish to have the auger. The drill named Rati. Rati means drill, and Rati was the finest drill of the gods possessed. It could drill deeply and drill through the hardest rock. Odin tossed the whetstone into the air and caught it again and put it inside his pouch beside the auger. Then he walked away. I wonder what he's going to do, said Thor. Kvasir would have known, said Frigg. He knew everything. ''Kvazir is dead,'' said Loki. ''As for me, I do not care where the All-Father is going or why.'' ''I am off to help build the wooden vats that the All-Father requested,'' said Thor. Sutong had given the precious mead to his daughter Gunlod, to watch over inside the mountain called Hnitbjorg in the heart of giant country. Odin did not go to the mountain. Instead, he went directly to the farmland owned by Sutong's brother,'' Baugi. It was spring and the fields were high with grasses to be cut for hay. Baugi had nine slaves, giants like himself, and they were cutting the grass for hay with huge scythes, each scythe the size of a small tree. Odin watched them. When they stopped work, when the sun was at its highest to eat their provisions, Odin sauntered over to them and said, I have been watching you all work. Tell me. "'Why does your master let you cut grass with such blunt sides? "'Our blades are not blunt,' said one of the workers. "'Why would you say that?' asked another. "'Our blades are the sharpest.' "'Let me show you what a well-sharpened blade can do,' said Odin. He took the whetstone from his pouch and drew it along first one scythe blade, then another, until each blade glimmered in the sun. The giant stood around him awkwardly, watching him as he worked." now said odin try them out the giant slaves swept their sides through the meadow grass and gasped and exclaimed with pleasure the blades were so sharp they made cutting the grass effortless the blades swept through the thickest stalk and met no resistance this is wonderful they told odin can we buy your whetstone buy it said the all-father absolutely not Let us do something more fair and more fun. All of you, come here. Stand in a group, each man holding his sides tightly. Stand closer. We can stand no closer, said one of the giant slaves, for the sides are very sharp. You are wise, said Odin. He held up the whetstone. I tell you this, the one of you who catches it, he alone shall have it. And so saying, he tossed the whetstone into the air. Nine giants jumped at the whetstone as it descended, each reaching with his free hand, paying no attention to the scythe he held. Each scythe with a blade, sharpened by the All-Father and his whetstone, wetted to a perfect sharpness. They jumped and they reached, and the blades glinted in the sun. There was a spray and a spurt of crimson in the sunlight, and the bodies of the slaves crumpled and twitched, and one by one fell to the freshly cut grass. Odin stepped over the bodies of the giants, retrieved the whetstone of the gods, and placed it back in his pouch. Each of the nine slaves had died with his throat cut by his fellow's blade. Odin walked to the hall of Baugi, Sutung's brother, and asked for lodging for the night. "'I am called Bolverker,' said Odin." Bulwerker said Baugy. ''A dismal name. It means worker of terrible things.'' ''Only to my enemies,'' said the person who called himself Bulwerker. ''My friends appreciate the things I do. They can do the work of nine men, and I will work tirelessly and without complaint.'' ''Lodging for the night is yours,'' said Baugi, sighing. ''But you have come to me on a dark day.'' Yesterday I was a rich man with many fields and with nine slaves to plant and to harvest, to labor and to build. Tonight I still own my fields and my animals, but all my servants are dead. They slew each other. I do not know why. A dark day indeed, said Bulverker, who was Odin. Can you not get other workmen? Not this year, sighed Baugi. The good workers are already working for my brother Sutong. "'and a few enough people come here in the way of things. "'You are the first traveller who has asked me for lodging and hospitality in many a year.' "'And lucky you are that I did, for I can do the work of nine men. "'You're not a giant,' said Baugi. "'You're a little shrimp of a thing. "'How could you do the work of one of my servants, let alone nine of them?' "'If I cannot do the work of your nine men,' said Bolvirker, then you need not pay me, but if I do, yes? Even in distant parts we have heard tales about your brother Sutung's extraordinary mead. They say it bestows the gift of poetry on anyone who drinks it. This is true. Tung was never a poet when we were young. I was the poet in the family, but since he has returned with the dwarves' mead, he has become a poet and a dreamer. "'If I work for you and plant and build and harvest for you and do the work of your dead servants, I would like to taste your brother Sutung's mead.' "'But,' uh, Baugi's forehead creased, "'but that is not mine to give. It is Sutong's "'A pity,' said Bolverker, "'that I wish you luck in getting the harvest in this year.' "'Wait! It is not mine, true.' But if you can do what you say, I will go with you to see my brother Sutung, and I will do all I can to help you taste his mead. Then, said Bolwerker, we have a deal. Never was there a harder worker than Bolwerker. He worked the land harder than twenty men, let alone nine. Single-handed he looked after the animals, single-handed he harvested the crops, he worked the land, and the land repaid him a thousand-fold." "'Bull-Worker,' said Baugi, as the first mists of winter rolled down the mountain. "'You are misnamed, for you have worked nothing but good. "'Have I done the work of nine men?' "'You have, and nine again. "'Then will you help me to get a taste of Sutung's mead?' "'I shall.' "'The next morning they rose early and walked and walked and walked, "'and by evening they had left Baugi's land and reached Sutung's on the edge of the mountains.' By nightfall, they reached Sutung's huge hall. "'Greetings, brother Sutung,' said Baugi. "'This is Bollwerker, my servant for the summer and my friend.' And he told Sutung of his agreement with Bollwerker. "'So you see,' he concluded, "'I must ask you to give him a taste of the mead of poetry.' Sutung's eyes were like chips of ice. "'No,' he said flatly. "'No,' said Baugi. "'No!' "'I will not give away a single drop of that mead, not one drop. "'I have it safe in its vats, in Boden and Son and the kettle Oderir. "'Those vats are deep inside the mountain of Knitbjörg, which opens only to my command. "'My daughter Gunnlod guards it. "'The servant of yours cannot taste it. "'You cannot taste it!' "'But,' said Baugi, "'it was blood compensation for our parents' deaths.' "'Don't I deserve the smallest measure of it "'to show Bullverker here that I am an honorable giant?' "'No,' said Sutong. "'You don't!' "'They left his hall. Baugi was disconsolate. "'He walked with his shoulders hunched high "'and his mouth drooping down. "'Every few paces, Baugi would apologize to Bullverker. "'I did not think my brother "'would be so unreasonable,' he would say. "'He is indeed unreasonable,' said Bolverker, who was Odin in disguise. "'But you and I can play a little trick or two on him "'so that he would not be so high and mighty in future, "'so that next time he will listen to his brother.' "'We could do that,' said the giant Baugi, "'and he stood straighter, and the corners of his mouth tightened "'into something that almost resembled a smile. "'What are we going to do?' First, said Bolverker, we will climb Hnitbjörg, the beating mountain. They climbed Hnitbjörg together, the giant going first and Bolverker, doll-sized in comparison, never falling behind. They clambered up the paths that the mountain sheep and goats made, and then they scrambled up rocks until they were high in the mountain. The first snows of winter had fallen unto the ice that had not melted from the winter before. They heard the wind as it whistled about the mountain, They heard the cries of birds far below them, and there was something else they could hear. It was a noise like a human voice. It seemed to be coming from the rocks of the mountain, but it was always distant, as if it were coming from inside the mountain itself. "'What noise is that?' asked Bolverker. Baugi frowned. "'It sounds like my niece, Gunlod singing.' "'Then we will stop here.' From his leather pouch, Bulverker produced the auger called Rati. Here, he said, you are a giant and big and strong. Why don't you use this auger to drill into the side of the mountain? Baugi took the auger. He pushed it against the mountainside and began to twist. The tip of the auger drilled into the mountainside like a screw into soft cork. Baugi turned it and turned it again and again. Done it, said Baugi. He pulled out the auger. Volverker leaned toward the hole made by the drill and blew into it. Chips and the dust of rocks blew back at him. I have just learned two things, said Volverker. What two things are these, asked Baugi. That we are not yet through the mountains, said Volverker. You must keep drilling. That is only one thing, said Baugi. But Volverker said nothing more on that high mountainside where the icy winds clawed and clutched at them. Baugi pushed the drill Ratsi back into its hole and began to turn it once more. It was getting dark when Baugi pulled the auger from the hole again. "'It broke through the inside of the mountain,' he said. Bulwerker said nothing, but he blew gently into the hole, and this time he saw the chips of rock blow inward. As he blew, he was aware that something was coming toward him from behind. Molverker transformed himself then. He turned himself into a snake, and the sharp auger plunged into the place where his head had been. "'The second thing I learned when you lied to me,' hissed the snake to Baugi, who stood astonished, holding the auger like a weapon, "'was that you would betray me.' And with a flick of its tail, the snake vanished into the hole in the mountain. Baugi struck again with the auger, but the snake was gone, and he flung the drill from him angrily and heard it clatter on the rocks below." He thought about going back to Sutung's hall, and once he was there telling his brother that he had helped bring a powerful magician up Knitbjörg, and he'd even helped him get inside the mountain, he imagined Sutung's reaction to this news. And then, his shoulders slumping and his mouth drooping, Baugi climbed down the mountain and trudged off home to his own hearth and his own hall. Whatever happened in the future to his brother or to his brother's precious mead, why... It was nothing to do with him. Bolverker slid in snake shape through the hole in the mountain until the hole ended, and he found himself in a huge cavern. The cavern was lit by crystals with a cold light. Odin transformed himself from snake shape into man shape once more, and not just a man, but a huge man, giant-sized and well-formed. Then he walked forward following the sound of song. Gunnlod, the daughter of Sutung, stood in the cavern in front of a locked door, behind which were the vats called Son and Boden, and the kettle, Odrarir. She held a sharp sword in her hands, and she sang to herself as she stood. "'Well met, brave maiden,' said Odin. Gunnlod stared at him. "'I do not know who you are,' she said. "'Name yourself stranger, and tell me why I should let you live.' "'I am Gunnlod, guardian of this place.' "'I am Bulverker,' said Odin, "'and I deserve death, I know, for daring to come to this place. "'But stay your hand and let me look upon you.' "'Gunnlod said, "'My father, Sutung, sent me on guard here to protect the mead of poetry.' "'Bulverker shrugged. "'Why would I care for the mean of poetry?' "'I came here only because I heard of the beauty and the courage "'and the virtue of Gunnlod, Sutung's daughter. "'I told myself, "'If she just lets you look at her, it will be worth it. "'Of course, she is as beautiful as they say in the tales. "'That was what I thought.' "'Gunnlod stared at the handsome giant in front of her. "'And was it worth it, Bo Verker, who is about to die?' "'More than worth it,' he told her. For you are more beautiful than any tale I have ever heard, or any song that any bard could compose, more beautiful than a mountain peak, more beautiful than a glacier, more beautiful than a field of fresh-fallen snow at dawn. Gunlad looked down, and her cheeks reddened. Can I sit beside you? asked Pulverker. Gudlod nodded, saying nothing. She had food there in the mountain and drink, and they ate and they drank. After they ate, they kissed gently in the darkness. After their love making, Mulverker said sadly, I wish I could taste one sip from the mead from the vat called sun. Then I could make a true song about your eyes, and all men would sing it when they wanted to sing of beauty. One sip, she asked. "'A sip so small nobody would ever know,' he said. "'But I'm in no hurry. "'You are more important than that. "'Let me show you how important to me you are.' (laughs) "'And he pulled her to him. "'They made love in the darkness, "'and when they had finished and were curled up together, "'naked skin touching skin, whispering endearments, "'then Bolverker sighed mournfully. "'What is wrong?' asked Gunnlodd. ''I wish I had the skill to sing of your lips. How soft they are. How much better they are than the lips of any other girl. I think it would be an excellent song.'' ''That is indeed unfortunate,'' agreed Gunnlod, ''for my lips are very attractive. I often think they're my best feature.'' ''Perhaps. But you have so many perfect features. Picking the best is so difficult.'' But if I were to take the tiniest taste from the vat called Bowden, "'the poetry would enter my soul "'and I would be able to make a poem about your lips "'that would last until the sun is eaten by a wolf.' "'Only the tiniest sip, though,' she said, "'because Father would get quite irritable "'if he thought I was giving away his mead "'to every good-looking stranger "'who penetrated the mountain fastness.' "'They walked to the caverns holding hands "'and occasionally brushing lips.' "'Gunlad showed Bolverker the doors and the windows "'that she could open from inside the mountain, "'through which Sutung sent her food and drink, "'and Bolverker seemed to pay no attention. "'He explained that he was not interested in anything "'that was not about Gunlad, "'or her eyes or her lips or her fingers or her hair. "'Gunlad laughed and told him "'he did not mean any of his fine words, "'and he obviously could not want to make love with her again. "'He hushed her lips with his lips.' "'and once again they made love. "'When they were both perfectly satisfied, "'Bolverker began to weep in the darkness. "'What's wrong, my love?' asked Gunnlod. "'Kill me,' sobbed Bolverker. "'Kill me now, for I will never be able to make a poem "'about the perfection of your hair and your skin "'and the sound of your voice, of the feel of your fingers. "'The beauty of Gunnlod is impossible to describe.' "'Well,' she said, I suppose it can't be easy to make such a poem, but I doubt it's impossible. Perhaps, yes? Perhaps the smallest sip from the kettle odourer would give me the lyrical skills to conjure your beauty for generations still to come, he suggested, his sobs ceasing. Yes, perhaps it would, but it would have to be the smallest of smallest sips. Show me the kettle and I will show you just how small a sip I can take. Gundlod unlocked the door, and in moments she and Bolverker were standing in front of the kettle and the two vats. The smell of the mead of poetry was heady in the air. Just the tiniest of sips, she told him, for three poems about me that will echo down through the ages. Of course, my darling, Bolverker grinned in the darkness. If she had been looking at him then, she would have known that something was wrong. With his first drink, he drank every drop of the kettle Odrir. With a second, he drained the vat called Boden. With his third, he emptied the vat called Son. Gunlad was no fool. She realized that she had been betrayed and she attacked him. She was strong and fast, and Odin did not stay to fight. He ran from there. He pulled the door closed and locked her inside. In the blink of an eye, he became a huge eagle. Odin screeched as he flapped his wings and the mountain doors opened and he rose into the skies. Gunlad's screams pierced the dawn. In his hall, Sutung woke and ran outside. He looked up and saw the eagle and knew what must have happened. Sutung, too, transformed himself into eagle shape. The two eagles flew so high that from the ground they were the tiniest of pinpricks in the sky. They flew so fast that their flight sounded like the roar of a hurricane. In Asgard, Thor said,
1: "'It is time!'
0: He hauled the three huge wooden vats into the courtyard. The gods of Asgard watched the eagles screaming through the sky towards them. It was a close thing. Sutung was fast and close behind Odin, his beak almost touching Odin's tail feathers as they reached Asgard. When Odin approached the hall, he began to spit. A fountain of mead spurted from his beak into the vats, one after another, like a father bird bringing food for his children. Ever since then, we know that those people who can make magic with their words, who can make poems and sagas and weave tales, have tasted the mead of poetry. When we hear a fine poet, we say that they have tasted Odin's gift. There, that is the story of the mead of poetry, and how it was given to the world. It is a story filled with dishonor and deceit, "'with murder and trickery, but it is not quite the whole story. "'There is one more thing to tell you. "'The delicate among you should stop your ears or read no further. "'Here is the last thing, and a shameful admission it is. "'When the Allfather in eagle form had almost reached the vats, with Sutong immediately behind him. "'Odin blew some of the mead out of his behind.' A splattery, wet, fart of foul-smelling mead right in Suttung's face, blinding the giant and throwing him off Odin's trail. No one, then or now, wanted to drink the mead that came out of Odin's ass. But whenever you hear bad poets declaiming their bad poetry filled with foolish similes and ugly rhymes, you will know which of the meads they have tasted. Okay. So interesting. And I find myself in a quandary because this is the second time that we've kind of tread across this territory of Neil Gaiman making changes for no apparent reason. There's not a lot of good reason to have dwarves be identified as dark elves because dark elves aren't dwarves. And I think that Neil Gaiman realizes that Dark Elves aren't dwarves, but for some reason has decided to go that way with his book anyhow. Um, I would think that he would have more respect for the material that he's covering. And I'm, I'm going to be unusually critical here of Gaiman because he does a few things in this story that, that I don't approve of. The first, of course, being the Dark Elf dwarf thing, not being consistent But also, it's kind of right in line with him making Svartalfheim not one of the nine realms and making hell one of the nine realms. I mean, to me, that's as bad as this abomination of, of heaven in the Marvel Universe where Angela lives. So, you know, I don't want that from a book of Norse mythology, I think that you can be faithful to the spirit of the myths without being slavish to every detail, and I think that Gaiman is very capable of that, but I don't like the way that, that he's adding things for no reason. He adds a lot to the story of Kvasir. If you compare it to the version that we read before on the show from uh, Kevin Crossley Holland's Norse mythology, um, you'll find it's quite different. And that's okay. It's okay to be quite different. And I think that, that there's a lot of good stuff here in this version of it. I particularly like the origin of Kvazir as being made out of, out of the spit of the gods. I mean, it's no more ridiculous than making a god out of mud and then pulling a rib out of him to make a woman. So there's, there's a lot here that, that I'm okay with. That being said, it, it's well told. The story is well told. The writing, of course, is, is gorgeous as usual. Um, there's some fun alliteration in there. We had that whole paragraph of Fs in the, in the beginning. And, and you don't really catch those things, perhaps, until you read out loud. And you realize, oh, yeah, I see what he's doing here. He is a master wordcrafter. And that is, of course, one of the appeals of, of Gaiman's work. I would rather, yes that he would be more faithful to the original work. But I understand, too, that he has to bring something to it for the current generation, the, perhaps people who aren't that familiar with the original myths who are just buying this book because it's Neil Gaiman. But I, I don't like the fact that he's giving them false information and has changed the cosmology to suit his own particular opinion. And and so that's kind of where I stand on it. And so I have very mixed feelings about this story. I do kind of have another issue, and that is with the end of the story. Gaiman goes to a, a kind of a ridiculous extreme here. This whole wet fart thing I think is rather silly. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessarily gross and juvenile. And I understand him wanting to inject some humor into this. He could have taken that time to not have the end of the story end so abruptly. Now, I'm not thinking that he had, you know, word limit on the story, but the story does end very quickly. It's kind of like a Stan Lee story in that regard, where he's in the situation where he has to wrap up the entire story in two pages, and that's kind of what this felt like. But he did it with a kind of an off-color and and gross juvenile sort of joke. Um, I'm okay with, with, Gross humor, but not in something that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I can see what he's going for. Yeah, bad poetry comes from a wet fart, (laughs) you know, but it doesn't really appeal to me as far as the the story goes. I think also of those people who hold the Norse myths in high regard as being a part of their their religion, maybe they wouldn't appreciate it so much either. So I can see why maybe some of the uh, Asatru out there might not like this adaptation on the other hand they may love it I don't know maybe they like wet fart jokes I don't know it's not my thing when it comes to uh you know to serious stories um and you know that's just my opinion and then I'm going to stick to it all right, so with that, I am going to wrap up the show for this week. Once again, folks, thanks very much for listening. We will be back to our uh, coverage of the 1988 Thor series in the run-up to issue number 400 next time. And uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see you then. So I'm back off over the Rainbow Bridge, back to Midgard, hopefully not following an incontinent eagle. And we'll see you next time here on Radio Free Asgard. Radio Free Asgard is copyright Tom Harris USA Productions, which is totally responsible for its content. The characters, stories, and situations presented on this program are copyright their respective copyright holders and are presented for entertainment, review, and educational purposes only. No ownership is implied. We make no money from this podcast and the contents are believed to be covered under fair use. If you like what you've heard on today's program, we'd appreciate it if you leave us an iTunes review, send us an email with your feedback, tell your friends if you have any, or annoy your coworkers with our incoherent ramblings and silly voices. Thanks once again for listening to Radio Free Asgard.